Hello and welcome to the SRA Podcast. I'm Faye, and with me today is Alex. Austin's on vacation right now, so he's not able to record the podcast. So, how are you doing, Alex? Oh, you know, things are exciting as always. I've returned once again to the audio space because suddenly my schedule has more free time. Yeah, things have been um, changing a lot in the wake of the national convention. We're really uh, getting things pretty much prepared for the uh, upcoming elections here at the end of September and in October and sort of laying the groundwork for bringing on new members into leadership who are elected by the general membership. Yep. Lots of lots of time being spent on getting the back end sorted out as well as uh, getting folks set up. We have some leadership transition that's already beginning to happen. Our director of chapter organizing will not be uh, running for election again and will be stepping down from their director position. So we'll already have a new individual stepping into that role in a few months. And obviously our chapters are a very crucial part of the organization. So that'll be interesting to kind of watch how that unfolds. And we're trying to make sure there's smooth transition there, making sure we have all of these processes in place so that people aren't starting from scratch. And in general, just doing that for everything, trying to get the trying to get the system a little bit more bolted down securely. Can you go over the upcoming elections? Because we actually have a referendum and an election that will be happening at different times. And we have to do it this way as per what's in the bylaws. But that might need a little bit of clarification. So can you sort of go over what the two elections are going to be and when they'll be occurring? Yeah, so the first election is going to be in September. It will be held between September 16th and September 23rd. So from Monday to Monday, giving a week period for people to turn in their ballots. It's going to be concerning the petitions from the National Convention. So it's going to have five chapters that have petitioned to have a chapter delegate. So that means that that will be a person sent to the central committee by the chapter through elections that they will elect their delegate and that delegate will be a full member of the central committee will be a full voting member be part of quorums and that sort of thing and they will represent their chapter at the national level and take part in national discussions and such things also we had two petitions from the convention that affected the bylaws there's one that concerns the recall of chapter delegates as well as the cause for recall. So right now, the way the bylaws are written, while a chapter delegate may be elected by just their chapter membership, the way the bylaws are currently written, they would only be able to be recalled via a national vote. So this petition would seek to uh, establish a balance there that if a chapter is sending their delegate, the chapter is also the one in control of getting their delegate back. So establishing an election or recall process to be able to get them back without going for the full national scale that you would have for a officer or an at-large member of the central committee. And then there's an additional petition of seeking to establish a off-boarding process for members who resign their membership, just clarifying and establishing that process within the bylaws as right now, a voluntary resignation is largely handled on a via policy and procedure within the SRA versus anything explicitly spelled out in the bylaws. So those questions will be uh, answered through that referendum. So, you know, the membership will 
we have the opportunity to approve of those chapter delegates since they are an expansion of the central committee or that is getting the national approval for it i don't really expect any of that to be controversial though i think everyone agrees that chapters should have their chapter delegates and then those two petitions uh, discussing those matters will be decided upon uh, shortly following that we'll then have the october elections which will be the general elections these will actually determine who's going to fill those spots. This one will run from October 1st to October 8th. And they, that will be Tuesday to Tuesday. And that will be determining folks for the, all the officer positions. So the president, the vice president, secretary, the treasurer, and the legal coordinator. It will determine two at-large members of the central committee. And then it will determine all the chapter delegates that were approved in the uh, previous referendum. General elections will be held via approval voting. So what this means is when members get the ballot, uh, they'll have the list of all of the options. And with approval voting, you can select all the options. You can select none of the options. You can select one option, two options, however many options you... It doesn't matter how many you select or you know you can select them all you can select none of them approval voting is just there's a list of names and who all do you approve of having this position and then it's very simple to tally up afterwards what ends up happening is everyone's approvals are tallied at the end if a lot of folks support two people that shows up in the approval tally but then whoever has the most approvals ends up being the one who actually is selected for that position so that way you know you can support multiple people but then the folks who do get into the position are the ones who manage to obtain the most approvals uh, versus a first past the post system where you have plurality rule versus this way where you can select whoever you approve of or you know if you approve of no one you can also cast uh, what would then be a blank of ballot for that question at least and then that also shows when the election is done, there's then that metric as well of saying, well, so many people didn't even vote at all in this particular question, and that thus shows a lack of approval that way. So just to clarify the elections that are taking place, in October, from October 1st to October 8th, there will be seven national seats open for people to run for, right? So the president, the vice president, the secretary, the treasurer, legal coordinator, and two at-large delegates. However, the chapter delegates, if they are approved at the referendum, will be voted for by their chapters. So rather than being sent out to all 2,500 members of the SRA, the voting will for those members of the Central Committee would be voted on by the members of that chapter. And chapter membership will be determined by filling out a form saying that you fall within this chapter's region and you affiliate with them and you want to vote in that election. Yes, and everyone should have an email for that. If you have not received an email or it got lost somewhere along the way, that voter registration form is at socialstory.org slash voting. Um, you can fill out your information in there and then send it off and that our secretary checks those that come in and uh, gets the membership roster updated and that's just you know you're it's just saying what chapter you affiliate with so that when these elections do happen for those five chapters that have petitioned for their delegate that way we know who 
affiliates with that chapter and then those chapter delegate ballots get sent to the right folks. And just to be clear, which five chapters are submitting chapter delegates? That is the Madison, Wisconsin chapter, the San Francisco Bay chapter, the South New England chapter, uh, the St. Louis chapter, and the Front Range Colorado chapter. Right. And any chapters that want to submit a delegate that couldn't do it this year can do so next year by sending a representative to the National Convention. Yes, that is the current process in the bylaws to do so. Awesome. So you don't really realize it until you get involved in an organization of this scale, how much process there really is to make sure that things are run fairly and equitably. Yeah, I'd say that that's uh, that's definitely accurate, that there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that ends up becoming very tiresome, as it were, uh, not, you know, not in a negative way, but just a... You know, it, it definitely is fatiguing in the sense that there are a lot of little things that come together to make sure that this all runs well. And all those little things can very easily pile up, uh, as it were, and uh, cause, cause a lot of stress for everyone involved. But uh, it's, it's all worthwhile to make sure we have a good organization that is going to be able to go accomplish its mission. As much as we might talk about the tiring things within the SRA, I think that there's something else of an organization we both belong to that had some also boring, tiresome, and at times irritating uh, discourse around its convention. Yes, well, uh, I'm actually no longer a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Technically, I guess I haven't been for a while. I paid dues a couple years ago, organized with them, never got a card, never got it much in the way of support from National, which is understandable. It's in a very small chapter with more radical views than the organization as a whole. But definitely still respect the DSA and what they do, even though I don't really affiliate with them anymore. But yeah, there was a lot of discourse surrounding their National Convention that kind of starting to wear on me a bit. How so? Well, it seems some people are deeply offended by the possibility that they might have to make concessions to make other people feel comfortable and are deeply offended at the idea that we should make any effort at all to to make sure that members of marginalized or disadvantaged groups feel welcome in socialist politics. Kind of be shocked and surprised. Yeah, it's our friends at Stupid Poll again. I've sort of made some uh, references to this crowd, but I've started to notice them getting a bit louder lately. And... It's really tiresome because this is a very old current on the left, and it was sort of inevitable that it would come back, but it's really frustrating to see all these people running around like they're a genius for saying that we should ignore feminism or we should ignore racial politics or that we should ignore people with disabilities and just focus on the real working class and doing class based class focused political analysis and focusing on the people in the factories and the distribution centers who you know it's it's a very old trend in socialist politics and it's really disappointing to see it flown around again like it's something new yeah even the wobblies were having an issue of this way back in the day yeah wasn't it the case that some of the early struggles of the labor movement were you had people who wanted to ignore race-based issues and just focus on building solidarity within the white working class. And you had people in socialist movements who were actively racist and actively exclusionary of black comrades and of black workers. 
and basically tried to create white socialist parties. I think that that sort of thing is uniquely destructive to left-wing movements because it's sort of based in giving credence to right-wing ideology. Yeah, this sort of thing is one of the great struggles of leftism in general, and everyone's got their favorite uh, leftist figure that they feel like did this better than other people, but it is a fundamental issue. This is something that's plagued the left for as long as the left has existed. You go look at some of the things Marx and Engels wrote, you'll you'll find some uh, not great takes, we'll go ahead and say, in their works on folks that were not in their ethnic background. Unfortunately, as is so often the case, especially in a, on the American left, you have a lot of folks who have these very backwards ideas about how the world works, and they want to be perceived as woke and progressive and have all the benefits of that uh, societal viewing that they get the respect for being advocates of the working class while also not accepting the fact like they have some pretty problematic shit of their own to deal with and unfortunately there's a lot of edgelords out there that want to be leftists but also want to use the hard r and it's just it's not good And the first thing that they'll cry when you describe them in that way is they'll accuse pro-feminist and pro-anti-racist left of doing that same thing, of doing it as essentially virtue signaling. Personally, I don't think that, quote, class-first Marxists or the stupid poll types, I don't think that they're virtue signaling. I think that they are genuinely buying into a form of leftist ideology. But I think the big issue is that Marxism isn't enough. Class-based analysis isn't enough. One of the main issues that we have is that there is no good education on feminism or queer theory in American public education, and the online education that you can find for this is very much from a particular audience and for a particular audience. We don't really have all that much in the way of feminist education for reactionary white dudes. And even when that education exists, it's so often drowned out by this larger reactionary cultural movement of the manosphere that rages against anything that they deem feminist. Like, I became educated in feminism and queer theory because I came out as bisexual in Southern California and started dating and making friends with a lot of extremely gay people who are immersed in that culture and are familiar with it and we could have those discussions and have book recommendations and i could i read feminist theory both in the forms of books and blogs i would really recommend anyone who wants to understand the roots of trans feminism to read whipping girl by julia serrano it's a little bit out of date some of the language is a little problematic but as like a basic text for understanding gender theory it's a great place to start. But if you're some white guy from Nebraska and you haven't encountered any of that sort of thing before, maybe you've been affiliated with DSA and you've got these sort of progressive anti-capitalist ideas and maybe you start studying Marxist theory. If you don't have that exposure to feminist theory, you're not going to understand intersectionality and how core intersectionality is to understanding and applying class to our present day situation. It's difficult to sometimes approach these issues because 
there is this immediate uh, attempt to completely destabilize one's entire argument, as it were. That especially, you know, you get your r slash stupid bull types who just won't even have a conversation, uh, won't even have a debate. They'll just immediately come out swinging with a bunch of low effort helicopter memes or whatever. And or worse still, they'll sea lion you by acting like they want to debate. But if you engage, then they'll start throwing barbs and transphobic remarks and like ableist insults at you. That's what I see from them more often. Yeah, it's sort of thing that it is not something that's easy to have a discussion with them about. It's not easy to get them to turn from their ways, as it were, because it's it's grounded in a fundamental misunderstanding of how these things work. Something I do see their argument often is, is this idea of class reductionism, of there is only the working class and the bourgeoisie, and that's all that exists. That their argument, if you can get them to engage in arguments, uh, is oftentimes grounded in this idea of, well, ultimately, you know, there's these differences, but do any of those differences actually matter? The only thing that actually matters is your working class background or your capitalist class background. And that, you know, a rich person is always going to be better off in society than a poor person. And the problem is that it, it does ignore the intersections of how these things play with each other. A quick and dirty example is police officers. How are police officers treated differently based upon their race? It's a dime a dozen story you can go find that, yes, all police officers, by virtue of their profession, have been granted greater power by the state and greater immunity from actions against them by virtue of the fact that they have become enforcers of the state. So the state has extended them certain privileges to, you know, not only offset the fact that they are working for the state, but also to protect them in the line of them working for the state and for protecting the state's interests. But you can still go out and find plenty of articles where you have black police officers who are mistreated and uh, face systemic racism from their white peers. Um, you can find all sorts of articles where a black undercover police officer or even just a, a black officer who is off duty, out of uniform or whatnot, getting assaulted by their white compatriots. That's a very quick and easy situation to see that even though they have this different level of privilege and protection from the state they are in their own sense a subclass that extends off of the working class and kind of gets part of those privileges that the capitalist class has nonetheless race still plays a very important role in how they are treated both by society at large and by their own fellow class members but don't you know alex police officers are working class and saying all cops are bastards alienates the working class from the true proletarian movement yeah <laughs> the, the real and... problem the real problem is all these trans people asking people to use their correct pronouns that's what's really stopping socialism which is like let's have a discussion about that for the viewers at home i know my voice i don't have the trans voice i'm sorry but i am in fact trans for those of you in the audience that aren't aware and yeah, it's 
let's have two trans people discuss why trans issues in America are weird and problematic most of the time because society just hates trans people. It's the sort of thing like, okay, go look at somebody like uh, Jenner. Yeah, Caitlyn Jenner was the one I was thinking about. She came out in 2015 and according to her Wikipedia article has been called the most famous openly transgender woman in the world. I would quibble on that. But her example is a good example because, you know, she's part of the Jenner family. So, you know, you've got Kendall and uh, Kylie Jenner are her daughters. And here's a case where you have intersectionality at work. Caitlyn Jenner, very bourgeoisie, has a net worth of over $100 million. So, you know, not Bezos levels of just grotesque monetary wealth, a dragon's hoard, as it were, but very well off. Apparently, she is still a registered Republican, and that kind of goes to show some of these class intersectionalities. They're like, so despite being a trans woman, still openly supports GOP candidates who, you know, actively hate trans people. But nonetheless, despite the fact that she has all of her millions of dollars and has this huge public persona, her standing in the capitalist class is affected by the fact that she is a trans woman. The capitalist class does make divisions within itself based upon these other aspects of people's identity and background and selves. That, yes, a billionaire or a millionaire, they all kind of schmooze together at the end of the day, but they do still very much make their distinctions I, I think it was, uh, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here, but like I think it was Eddie Murphy who gave a story about his house one day. At this point in his career, he's a very well-established actor and comedian. He's making millions of dollars in contracts and such. Very wealthy individual at this point. The, his next door neighbor was a dentist. And so he made the point in that discussion of saying, look, here I am making millions and millions and millions of dollars. And my neighbor is a dentist who makes $300,000 a year, half a million dollars a year, doing the teeth work for all these celebrities. And he made the point that, like, he couldn't get a house where all of these, you know, white celebrities lived uh, because nobody would sell him a house. So even though here he is a celebrity in his own right, making all this money, nonetheless, his race still ends up becoming a factor and his ability to interact with people in his own class. You know, he's a well-off celebrity, but he can't go live with the other well-off celebrities. He's living next to a dentist. Why is that? If life in a particular class is only based upon your being in that class, then there's no reason Eddie Murphy shouldn't be able to go live with all of his other well-off celebrity compatriots. But in actuality, his race is still affecting it. Caitlyn Jenner is not immune to the transphobia of her own class. I don't have a good story like I do with like Eddie Murphy just off the top of my head, but it's easy to see, you know, how people still treat her very differently, you know, even even in her own compatriots with interviews and these sorts of things. Even even within her family, people have distanced themselves from Caitlyn Jenner. She has a lot of money, but she's not getting a lot of collaborations 
with the sort of traditional wealthy conservative class that she is used to associating with. Yes. And that's usually what happens is you get these situations where, you know, especially for trans women in Hollywood, Hollywood's a good example of this because it is a culture so steeped in these public personas and public interactions. Most of the millionaire and billionaire class don't interact in public. Uh, you don't get to hear about who David Koch is associating with. Uh, we do get to hear about who he's associating with nowadays because uh, he's associating with the dirt. I forget which but one. Like, but like the answer to that is going to be who gives a shit about Caitlyn Jenner and whether she has friends. She's still 100 millionaire. She's still materially very well off. So if someone considers themselves a materialist, they're going to say, well, forget about all this individual stuff, like the basic economic relationship is still dominant. She's still she's still a rich bitch, <laughs> to put it bluntly. And so I, I, I want to, and I apologize that I might be getting a little bit into the weeds with theory here, but I think this is important to understand. There's this concept in Marxist theory of base and superstructure, right? You have the base level of economic relations, who controls the means of production, who does the labor, how are goods and power distributed within society. And then on top of that, you have the superstructure of media, of government, of law, of social relationships and traditions and all these other sorts of non-economic systems that support the base. But the base and the superstructure interact with each other in a dialectical way. They influence each other. One isn't always dominant over the other. The superstructure, this sort of realm of like ideas and laws and culture has effects on how material resources and economic power are distributed. And oftentimes, as a system comprising both a base and a superstructure, capitalism will use cultural and social and legal structures to enforce changes in the base and to change the power relationships of society. So simply look to America's founding sins, genocide and slavery. When the colonists came to the Americas and committed genocide against Native American people, that was driven by racism and the superstructural idea of, you know, manifest destiny and of building a society in a new world. But that had real physical consequences on the base economic structure by depriving Native Americans of the land that they had owned and controlled that their society was so integrated with. And that land then became the property of the white capitalist class. Then slaves are brought over to the Americas and forced to do free labor for literally centuries under horrific conditions, creating wealth for the capitalist class, creating these massive cities and other economic structures. And the racism and the scientific racism that was used to justify slavery and to justify the genocide of Native Americans was a superstructural idea that had real impact on how the material distribution of power and resources was determined. And likewise, women were forced to do unpaid domestic labor, were forced to fulfill important social and caregiving roles in society, while often being treated as property of men. This was a way of altering the base relationships of society, where essentially male society reaped the economic rewards of women's labor. This is capitalism. This is the relationship between the superstructure and the base, between culture and economics. 
and you cannot change the material basis of society without challenging the societal context in which our economic system functions. If you want to change who has control of the means of production, then you need to start dismantling the existing structures that uphold the current system. And that means dismantling patriarchy. It means being an anti-racist. It means being an anti-imperialist. It means being for the liberation of all oppressed peoples and for reparations as best as we're able to provide them for people who have been wronged so as to dismantle and undermine the power structure that sustains our current capitalist dystopian hellscape. Absolutely. In an effort to salvage my compare previous attempt to discuss class intersectionalism with Caitlyn Jenner, there is something that ties into this that I think also uh, is demonstrable from a working class perspective as well, because, you know, we can get lost in the weeds debating how much rich people hate other rich people based upon, you know, their other characteristics beyond how much money they have in their pocket. But there is something Caitlyn Jenner said that very much applies to working class individuals as well, that really shows where this intersectionality is needed, that, you know, if you're going to go out and talk to the working class and try to radicalize the working class and get a leftist movement going, you have to be able to understand the particular struggles. And something Jenner got a lot of heat on from a lot of feminists, and I'm not saying that Jenner had some great big philosophical point uh, with this. It, I, I don't know if she made it in, in jest or if uh, she had a bigger point there, but it ended up at least possibly inadvertently making a bigger point, is that when somebody asked Caitlyn Jenner what the hardest part of being a woman was, she responded, figuring out what to wear. And there was a lot of feminists who came out and were like, this is very objectifying and this is not okay. And uh, there was a lot of discourse that came out of that. But I think that ties into this intersectional perspective, because if you look at that from the perspective of transgender identity politics, and also looking at it from the working class perspective, someone like Caitlyn Jenner has millions of dollars at her disposal. She can go get all the surgery she wants. She can get all the hormone treatment she wants. She can get all the clothes she wants she can provide that presentation. And I think intersectional politics and what oftentimes these stupid poll people forget is just how much of society is an act, a projection, the spectacle, if you will. Well, in that little thing of figuring out what to wear, that right there hits at a core problem that you can see with the intersectional idea of a working class trans individual. Figuring out what to wear ends up not being, you know, what then Hollywood feminists decried as objectifying, but just as a day-to-day -day thing of survival. That if you want to go sell your labor and make money so you can pay for the roof over your head and maybe some food while you're at it, how you present yourself out to the world is very important. You have a different set of criteria that you must fulfill as a trans member of the working class versus a cis member of the working class, that not wearing the right outfit could result in you not having a job anymore. There's presentation to everything, 
and for trans individuals, it's something that they have to be very careful about their presentation with. That if you are a trans woman and you walk out the door and people don't perceive you as a cis woman, but instead perceive you as a man in a dress, that causes very real societal consequences to you in the society that we live in and is right there a perfect catalyst of a working class individual who has these issues and this also extends to you know the grander idea of white heteronormativity that you can then apply the same logic to other situations that for individuals that are in marginalized communities the expectation of society is for them to perform towards what society deems the normal, acceptable ideal. If you completely reject intersectional politics, if you completely toss that out the door, it's ignoring the realities that every worker is expected to perform to a particular ideal. Some workers are already at that ideal because of benefit of the way they were born versus other workers who must then deviate from what their actual identities and ethnicities may be in order to perform to this ideal of society that is very much a white cis heteronormative ideal. And that's really what Stupid Poll is, is it's people who have the understanding that capitalism is bad, which by this point should be obvious to just about anyone who isn't a petty bourgeois liberal. But then they don't have any of the understanding of feminism or racism or the intersection between those things and class or the intersection between the base and the superstructure. Like when we talk about intersectionality, we're really talking about dialectics. Like fundamentally, they're the same concept arrived at through different philosophical lenses. The stupid poll is really just people enforcing cis heteronormative societal standards and then using that to beat down on members of the socialist movement and members of the working class who don't live up to those standards. Like, you look at this movement as a whole, the stupid poll, dirtbag left movement, they're not going out there and organizing the working class. Like, they're not actually going out there and successfully bringing new people into the left for the most part. What they're doing is they're driving out people who are members of marginalized groups by being fucking shitty to them all the time. And so... They're upholding the superstructure that supports capitalism and driving people out of the socialist movement that are attempting to change the superstructure in a way that allows for the base material conditions of society to change as well. And even when this sort of tendency does try to reach out to conservative working class people and build a working class movement, they're not successful. I'm not going to drop names here, but there are Trotskyist parties who have been taking this approach for decades who have been ditching, oh, the liberal id poll type of things, even if they don't use that language, you know, abandoning feminism, abandoning progressive principles and just focusing on class and just focusing on organizing people in unions against their bosses and against capitalism. These movements have not been successful. <laughs> they haven't worked. They haven't built uh, mass movements able to affect societal change. It basically comes down to like a conservative social democrat movement. And if you're going to build that, those types of things exist in Europe. And they they have not been successful in changing the, the base. They haven't been successful in changing capitalism. They haven't been successful in actually changing who owns the means of production. All they really managed to do is get some mi like mild concessions for the working class 
while alienating significant portions of especially oppressed, especially radical members of the working class who might be down to actually create large-scale societal change and might be willing to step up and be activists and do direct action and participate in radical politics in a way that actually matters versus these class-first parties with conservative social politics that never really go anywhere beyond you know, basic social reforms like you might find in the Democratic Party, but with a complete blindness to race and sex and gender and imperialist sorts of relationships. Absolutely. And, and honestly, it's, it manifests itself in just the silliest of ways. And the, the problem is that it's silly at first, and then it becomes increasingly more hostile because you know we can approach this from the philosophical standpoint of looking at okay where are these people coming from what misunderstandings have they had of these different works what arguments have they not taken into consideration but then it devolves out of control i won't say names but there is a reddit post on our good old r slash socialist ra subreddit that folks visit uh, a quote that stands out to me is, I could give a shit about what pronouns they want to use. Editor's note, it would be, I could not give a shit. They forgot the negative in there. Uh, it doesn't affect me. The policing everyone else is the ridiculous part. If you have specific pronouns you want people to use, then you should let people know. But requiring everyone to say their pronouns is silly. This is in reference to the DSA convention. For the uninitiated, in recent years, most chapters have adopted the system of, you know, when you start a meeting, you have introductions, you say your pronouns and who you are and whatever. It takes all of five seconds. It helps people establish themselves because, as it turns out, you can't always know somebody's pronouns right off the bat. And by putting the onus on somebody who looks one way but has pronouns that go the other way it puts stress on that individual because now they're the ones standing out i don't want to have to go to a dsa meeting and be the one person there who says oh actually can you refer to me this way by having everyone state their pronouns up front it eases that if everyone's doing it it's less of a big deal but you know if you're in the world of stupid pull then you're most likely, I'm just going to say demographically, like the, the most people who visit Stupid Pole fall into this demographic of younger white dude, usually cis dudes, I'm pretty sure that's like all of them. Um, if there's trans dudes out there, I guess, okay. Um, there's a couple of trans women uh, that I'm aware of, and a couple of cis women, but it's a minority. Yeah. So, you know, if you have to draw them out of a hat, probably going to be some cis dude they feel silly about it they feel like it's silly to them because they're a dude everyone's always referred to them as a dude throughout their entire life so like why would they need to announce the fact that they're a dude even though like we just said they're a dude they have always expressed themselves that way in their life they've always had society be accepting of them and now they're having the opportunity to say i'm a dude it's not a whole lot of physical energy to be able to do that, but they feel bad about it because they think, well, but society has always assumed this of me. Why do I need to go do this? Why do I need to say he, him at the meeting? 
even though it takes two seconds of speech to do it, the very act of doing it in its own way puts them on a similar level to the person next to them, who society might have always assumed one way, but then they actually are another way, and they need to express themselves that way. Now they have an impression in their mind that this person is an other, that this person is not normal, and now I'm having to do what the not normal person is having to do. And that's what annoys them. That's why this individual is saying, oh, well, that onus is on you to do it. Well, what actual harm is being done if they have to also announce their pronouns? None, except the fact that now somebody who is traditionally on a lower part of society's ladder of privilege, now the game has ever so slightly been adjusted, and they just can't deal with it. And in that old way, they're admitting to the fact that there is intersectionality going on, that it's not just working class, because if they really believe that all workers were at the same level, and that ultimately all these differences came out as a wash, they wouldn't have an issue with all workers announcing their pronouns. But in that hesitance to announce their pronouns as a cis dude, they are showing the fact that they realize that there is a difference and they don't want to accommodate that difference. They don't want that even just a little bit of evening playing field. And obviously the same goes for for supporting people with disabilities, whether that be people with autism or you know sensory overload issues who can't handle loud applause or giant crowds of people. Like a lot of stupid poll types their main thing for the past couple weeks has just been shit-talking the DSA convention for having ASL applause or for that one person who got up and made an ass of themselves on the stage. But going back to the pronoun issue, even if not everyone was asked to state their pronouns, if it was left up to trans people to state their pronouns on their own without having other people do it in solidarity, they would still talk shit about trans people because then they would complain about trans people making a big deal out of their gender and you know oh why do you have to care so much about pronouns why can't you just just ignore it and just well refer to you by whatever pronoun seems appropriate to me that's sort of the response that you get from them and one thing i've noticed is there's like an increasing overlap between the stupid poll dirtbag left and actual like turf communities like r slash gender critical and various turf communities on other social media platforms where what it comes down to is they have this basic reactionary prejudice in them that maybe hasn't been fully expressed before but then they go into like a dsa meeting or something and they have a bad interaction with a trans person and suddenly oh my god trans people are all terrible they all have this and that and i don't like them and they're against the working class and we shouldn't have to cater to their issues because they have a bad experience at a meeting or they feel bad when they state their pronouns because they had this reactionary prejudice and when they were forced to confront it in an arena where they were expecting to be centering their particular political issue that's when they really take offense to it. That's when it's sort of put in their face that they're going to have to accommodate other people's point of view and other people's needs. 
And that's what really offends them. And the reason that you see this sort of like cross-pollination with turf politics and transphobic sort of ideas beyond just the like the ideological connections that you can draw between those movements, it really comes down to turfs and stupid pole types both have that same basic psychological reason for behaving the way they do and that they have this prejudice, they're forced to confront that prejudice and rather than deconstruct their prejudice, they just buy into it wholesale. And when it comes down to it, it's really no different than a white person who is maybe uh, slightly racist, but they're not a racist. But then they go out and they get mugged or someone like breaks into their car or something. And suddenly they become super racist against black people because they had an existing prejudice and then something happened that confirmed that prejudice that allowed it to turn into a point of ideology for them. And that's what happens with stupid poll. It's what happens with gender critical. It's what happens with a lot of reactionary prejudices. And so if these people aren't willing to look inward and reflect on their own prejudice, if they aren't willing to confront their own flaws as human beings and deal with the sort of hateful and spiteful parts of themselves and learn to be in solidarity and stand up for marginalized people better. If they're not willing to do that, then they're just going to continue to be reactionaries. And you can be a reactionary while quoting Marx. You can be a reactionary while quoting Slavoj Zizek, which most of them do. Slavoj Zizek is a reactionary. That's really what it comes down to is just basic bigotry and people being unwilling to confront it within themselves. I will say, just kind of on a final note, another individual that popped up on the subreddit, to quote them, they said, also referring to the DSA convention, all this is doing is creating a new divide on the left. On one hand, you've got the extremists that use like 10 terms to describe themselves, and on the other, you've got regular people that respect that, or but are getting a bit tired of having to learn a new term repeatedly. So... This is something I also see stupid poll use. It's the mechanic in Oklahoma. That you have the poor, downtrodden mechanic in Oklahoma that all he wants to do, shockingly enough, it's always a he, all he wants to do is put bread on the table for his family. That he cares about the workers' issues. But he doesn't care about all this newfangled, millennial, outrage culture stuff about gender and sexuality and he's just didn't have time for it he just wants food on the table for his family so why should he have to deal with all of this and all you're doing by presenting these issues is making it more difficult for him to get involved in the community and if only we had less focus on trans issues or we had less focus on race we could get the poor downtrodden white man of oklahoma to go be part of the socialist left Putting aside for a second that it's just silly. The problem there is most working class people are not inherently assholes. And this is the sort of thing that stupid pull is filled with assholes. And so they apparently assume everyone else is as well. Most working class people don't immediately react to this character that stupid pull has created. This character of the quote-unquote Tumberlina, uh, this sort of, you know, individual that you would find on Tumblr or something where they have a list of identifiers like this person said, 10 terms to describe themselves. I find, honestly, like, I've encountered that more with, like, leftism. I'll go to somebody's Twitter bio and it'll be a paragraph of 
all the various leftist ideologies that they've merged together. I don't think that's annoying. I just think it's funny. But I haven't met somebody who has that laundry list of identifiers for their own personal identity, uh, I've generally found. But, you know, they might be referring to somebody such as my wife, who identifies as a pan-demisexual, non-binary woman. And somebody would look at that and be like, what What have I seen? What am I, like, what? But in actuality, when my wife has discussed this with other people, usually people aren't don't act like people do on Stupid Poll, of being like, oh my god, you just, you're looking for attention. Usually people are like, well, what does that mean? And then you explain what that means, and then things go on. The universe goes on. Most of the time, people are not assholes about this. People have certain prejudices they've gained through their time in society, but most of the time, people don't want to be assholes to their fellow people. People can attempt to prove me wrong on that, but that's my personal life philosophy, is that usually people don't want to be annoying to other people. People want to get along. And this idea that you're alienating this poor Oklahoman mechanic because now he has to, I don't know, understand what pronouns are? This isn't a concept that's alien to the human race. We've been figuring this out for a few thousand years now, if not, you know, just prehistory. There's evidence to suggest that, like, people had an understanding of gender and of different gender identities and expressions uh, all the way back to our cave drilling ancestors so it's it's the sort of thing that i i look at that and i go well in actuality that oklahoman mechanic that you're talking about might have a transgender daughter or a gay son or whatnot are you going to then tell him that the issues he cares about because you know they're his flesh and blood, and he wants to see the best for his children. Are you going to tell him that his issues don't really count? Because his other mechanic buddy might not understand it. Because this is how real life works. Is that, especially in the LGBT community, somebody comes out, usually, you know, son, daughter, whoever, child, and their parents have to deal with it, and then their parents go to the workplace because we spend most of our lives in the workplace, and they discuss it with their co-workers. That's literally how the working class functions, is that you have your family unit, and then you have your working unit, and the two have a little bit of osmosis going on. That's why we are where we are in these sorts of issues, is having to confront it yourself, and then discussing it with your co-workers. Are you going to tell that Oklahoman mechanic that if he has a transgender daughter that he can't talk to his mechanic buddies about it because that might alienate them from the left because that might make them not care about working class issues. Or if they do talk about it, then he has to be an asshole about it. He might really love his transgender child and accept them for who they are, but you're you're telling me that this person should become a transphobe so as not to alienate their coworkers by supporting their transgender child? That's sort of what stupid polls logic leads to. And I rest my case on that. I mean, it's the sort of thing that we've seen this happen before in other areas, and exposure is the best cure so often in these situations. This is why folks who live in diverse areas tend to become more tolerant 
of diverse communities because exposure forces them to get out of this anti-diverse ideologies of saying diversity is bad, diversity causes all these problems. By being exposed to diversity, now you see, no, all this is bullshit. They're just all making it up, basically. And that's why Stupid Poll doesn't want to consider those alternatives and those issues where the fact of the matter is, the working class, as it is exposed to these things, because on the whole, people aren't assholes, people want to get along, they just don't because that's the way society has taught them. Because, yes, that is to the benefit of the bourgeoisie and the capitalist class. It's to the benefit that the workers stay divided on these things. But you can't then take that logic that, oh, the bourgeoisie is using uh, all these identity politics against us. They're dividing and conquering. Yes, they're dividing and conquering based on identity politics. The answer isn't then to say identity politics are shit and we're just all one class. The idea there is to be like, no, we are a diverse class, but we don't need to fight each other over these diversities. We have to figure out solutions to help the members of our diverse class in order to then get rid of the bourgeoisie. That stupid pull, it's seeing the issue and then taking the completely wrong solution to it. But, you know, we can talk about this all day, but whatever we say on this podcast, there's going to be a response post on Reddit or Twitter or something, and someone's going to pull out their bespoke Mark Fisher quote from the one Mark Fisher book that any of them have ever read. And then they're going to argue that we're misrepresenting their position and that we don't understand them because at the end of the day, they don't really have any sort of firm, concrete ideology. It's pretty much just, like I said, conservative social democracy with radical leftist aesthetics tied in with reactionary prejudices. And again, it's the same type of politics that has tried to exist on the left for decades. And when it goes too far to the right, you end up with the Italian syndicalists or the Strasserites or whoever. And if you stray a little further to the left, you get the conservative social democrats. And at, at the end of the day, no strain of this type of ideology has ever posed any sort of threat to the capitalist base. They've never posed any sort of threat to the existing capitalist economic order because they hobble themselves by immediately buying into conservative ideology and buying into these reactionary prejudices that keep the working class divided. But, you know, they're going to complain that they're misrepresented regardless. So what can you do? Oh, absolutely. The only thing I can do is to say I am, in fact, running for election again for SRA president. So my campaign platform does include such highlights as never cross a picket line, stupid pull into the ocean, and... If you're into you know, butchering identity politics and attempting to spread these Italian syndicalist ideas that are basically adjacent to fascism at that point, I'm not going to cry about losing your vote. And honestly, I'd prefer you not to be in the organization. So, Yeah, I'll sign on to that platform. All right, well, we're going to sign off here. And coming up next, we have an interview with the SRA secretary, J.L. Hamilton, to discuss the AK-47, its history, mechanics, and modern relevance. I do love me some AKs. AK for life. Not really. Buy an AR-15. <laughs>
Alright folks, welcome back. Today we have a special interview with the secretary of the SRA, Jason Hamilton. Hey, what's up? Today we're going to be talking about the AK-47, its history, its utility, and what its role is in terms of arming people today. Welcome aboard, Jason. Tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, I'm the secretary of the SRA. I'm an AK guy. That's why I'm here. About to get a little rundown on the ins and outs of the AK-47 platform, and uh, just happy to be here. Awesome. Well, I guess to start off, can you talk about the AK-47 and how it's perceived by people who are new to firearms? Ah, uh, sure. So I think it depends on where you're from, but there's only this kind of like bad boy element to it. So you know, you've got hip hop culture that kind of glorifies. Uh, the AK-47 is kind of being the weapon of choice for the street gangster. In politics, we always see it brought up in terms of like Al-Qaeda or ISIL. It was the choice of weapon for bin Laden. A lot of that started during the Cold War. You had films like Rambo kind of paint the M16 as being the good guy's gun and the AK-47 as being the gun of the Soviets. So there's, there's always kind of the seedy element to the way that it's portrayed in media. And uh, I know that the Russian government now is trying to do a, a lot of PR to try to spin that and say, well, you know, actually, maybe it can be used as the, the weapon of the good guys. So really, what is the AK-47? Where did it come from? Like, what's the history of this weapon? And why did it come about? And how does it relate to like other guns of its era? The first modern assault rifle came during World War II with the Nazi development of the Sturmgewehr 44. Sturm meaning storm, uh, Gewehr meaning rifle, 44 being the year that it was manufactured or went into production. And the SDG 44, as it was known um, or is known now, provided the Nazis with the firepower of like a submachine gun, but with better range and accuracy. Someone at the time might have been more familiar with the bolt action that get about the same kind of accuracy. And the Nazis were winning lots of battles with it. So after the Soviet forces encountered it on the Eastern Front, they knew that they needed a similar weapon that could not only compete, but also win them the war. So at the time, there was the SKS, which was uh, developed in 1943, and it was set to use a cartridge, the 7.62 by 39 millimeter round. And they knew that they were going to be using this, this cartridge, so they created a competition centered around this cartridge. And the idea was, you know, we need a rifle that can compete with the SCG-44. Uh, let's, let's get to crack and let's get one out. So there was a Soviet gunsmith by the name of Alexei Sadaev, and he made a rifle called the AS-44, AS just being his initials. It was put through its paces, but at like over 12 pounds unloaded. It was way too heavy for widespread use, so they discontinued its research for a little bit. They brought it back, but Alexei Sadaev died in 1946, so uh, his project died with him. But they did need that assault rifle, so they started another assault rifle competition, and it was this competition that Mikhail Kalashnikov joined, and he ended up winning this competition. So uh, his design, the AK-1 and the AK-2, ended up going through several iterations, and that AK designation became the AK-47 in 1947. And what does AK stand for? So that is Russian, and it is Avtomat Kalashnikova. So it just means Kalashnikov's automatic. Nice. So the Soviets developed this new, you know, select fire intermediate cartridge 
30-round magazine assault rifle in 1947, but it didn't really enter service immediately. Why was that? So um, he actually began the design in 1941. Kalashnikov came from this agricultural background. His family were like farmers. But in 1938, at age 19, Kalashnikov was drafted into the Red Army. And there he was enrolled in a tank school where he would learn about tanks, how to drive them, how to operate them. And uh, during his schooling, he developed some kind of device. I've, I've really tried to find this. Uh, I've even read like old Russian archives and used like Google Translate to try to get this. I, I cannot figure out for the life of me what this device was. Maybe it's classified, but he developed something for military vehicles and was sent to Leningrad for its implementation and production. And then after this work was completed, uh, he went back to his tank unit in the Red Army. He was wounded in combat in a 1941 battle and was hospitalized until April of 1942. It was at this hospital, here's the funny story, uh, where he started overhearing other soldiers complaining about how maybe if their rifles hadn't jammed or fallen apart, they might not be occupying a hospital bed. So he got to thinking about this earlier rifle competition that he had entered, uh, which he actually lost to the SKS, but he wanted to get back into the rifle design business, so he did. And he entered this competition, and uh, it was the second go where his design won. So that, that took many years. The real, I guess, grunt of the work started in 1943. The competition went on through, I think, 1945. And uh, by the time 1947 rolled around, it had already been under several different iterations. So why did the Soviet military choose to keep the SKS rifle as its main infantry rifle for a couple of decades after the AK's development? The SKS is a semi-automatic only, feeds from a 10-round stripper clip. It seems like a very clunky rifle compared to the AK, so why did it take them so long to switch over to the more modern assault rifle design? So the reason that the SKS um, was still around for a little while was because uh, of how expensive the tooling was. So uh, among the first AK-47s that were rolling off the production line, there was the Type 1 and, uh, of course, the Type 2. But these were milled receivers. Uh, so that means that the actual body of the rifle itself was carved out of a solid block of uh, metal. And this is far more expensive than uh, bending what's called receiver flats. These are flat pieces of metal which are then folded origami style. And then you, you use rivets in order to hold them together. But the stamping technology was prohibitively expensive. Uh, just getting the tooling off the ground uh, took many years. So the AK has a reputation for being an extremely reliable gun. Is this really the case? And if so, what sort of aspects of its design lend themselves to that? So, yeah, um, it's definitely a reliable rifle. There are a number of photos that you can find on the internet of people who find old AKs, Middle East, North Africa, and these things are incredibly rusty, but when uh, taken apart and given a light brushing, they fire reliably. The reason that it's so reliable is because the tolerances on the actual machine parts themselves are quite loose compared to, say, an M16. So if sand gets into the barrel or um, comes in contact with the receiver and the bolt carrier group, it can just as easily fall out. So 
there aren't any tight corners inside of the AK uh, receiver itself where things can become jammed up if, if dust or debris or that kind of thing gets in. If you go to YouTube and you type in AK mud test, you'll find dozens of videos, possibly hundreds of people taking an AK, uh, AKM platform, AK-74, whatever, and filling it up with gravel, throwing it in a river, and then immediately pulling it out with a rope and then giving it a fire. And it runs remarkably smooth. So you mentioned a few different types of AK there. Could you go through like the major variants of the AK platform over the decades? So there's the original AK-47, which, as I mentioned, had a milled receiver. And then the AKM was the AK uh, modernized. And this was a stamped receiver, as I mentioned earlier, more easy to manufacture, lighter weight. And after the AKM came, of course, the AK-74 in 1974. And from then, uh, there have been a number of strange side projects that the Russian government has uh, engaged in, such as the Antonov 94, which you should look this up. It's pretty cool. It's got a, a, a gas piston system that's on a gear such that when the bolt carrier goes backwards, a, another weighted bar moves forwards above, and it keeps the entire rifle balanced such that there's practically zero recoil. This design was also um, used in the AK-107, AK-108, and AK-109 rifles. Nowadays, I think they've scrapped that idea because uh, these gears have to be serviced pretty often. And now they use, I think, the AK-100 series for the most part. These are side folding where the buttstock moves over to the left side. And they're short barrel rifles. The barrel is under 16 inches. Oh, I should also mention the uh, the AK-74 fires a different round. So the reason they developed the AK-74 was because they wanted a round that could rival the NATO 5.56. They came up with the 5.45 by 39. So it has better ballistics, I think, depending on who you ask. I think it penetrates better or something, but... It's, so that's a 7.62 AK round, essentially necked down to a smaller bullet, right? So it's sort of like a, it's like a lighter, faster projectile instead of having a big, chunky 30 caliber bullet coming out of your rifle. That's correct. Gotcha. So obviously the Soviets felt they had to make some improvements to make the AK better rival the M16. So what really is the comparison between the the AK platform and the uh, M16. And I guess that sort of also changes depending on the era that you're talking about. So the rounds themselves have different muzzle velocities. Uh, the AK is going to move a bit faster, but it's a it's a larger round. The, sorry, the 7.62 by 39 round. And its effective range is a bit lower. So you start to lose your, your groupings uh, beyond 100 yards, to be quite frank. But you can still be, I mean, a, a good shooter can still have a, a good effective range with an AK at about 330 to 400 yards. Whereas with a, a finely tuned AR, you can get easily 500 yards and more. But with the 7.62 by 39 round, it's a much larger round than the 5.56 NATO. So it has more penetrating power. And I think the idea there is that it can get through concrete and other structures to 
to hit someone on the other side, whereas the 5.56 five, round is meant to hit a target and uh, basically sink inside the body. Uh, that's the same thing that's going on for the 5.45 uh, rounds. Uh, they wanted something that could not just pass through a target, but hit it and stop it. Nice. So what about the rifles themselves of the AK versus the M16? Generally, they're... I mean, they're fairly similar. Standard capacity magazines uh, at 30 rounds. The the like charging handles are different, I guess. Um, on the AR, you'll pull it from the rear. On the AK, you'll pull it from the right hand side. Uh, people who are like preeminent professional AR operators don't like this fact about the AK because it means uh, either moving your left hand over or under the AK in order to rack the charging handle, or it means taking your hand off of the pistol grip and uh, using your right hand if you're uh, a right-handed person to charge the uh, rifle. But yeah, that's how it was meant to be used. You're meant to take your right hand off of the pistol grip quickly and, and uh, charge the rifle. The AR line, you're going to have an easier time mounting an optic usually. A lot of standard rifles nowadays come with Picatinny rails and that kind of thing, whereas on the AK, you've got a side rail mount on the left side, and there are a lot of aftermarket uh, side rail mounts that you can get that make this a lot nicer. There's also uh, gas tube mounts that are available now. There's a dust cover mount system now. But these are things that you'll have to buy extra. The optics for the AK market, I must admit, are not as great as are available for the AR market. So it sort of lends itself to the rifle is fine mentality, I guess. Sure. I mean, the AK is a very simple bare bones rifle. If you spend, uh, let's say, $300 on an AR, you'll get a perfectly fine functional AR. If you spend $300 on an AK, though, you do have problems. And that's partially because, like I mentioned, the tooling is expensive. So if you're buying a $300 AK in the United States, either there's something wrong with it or it's been made by an American AK company. And a lot of these companies use cast parts. And there are reviews online of people uh, taking a, a rifle, let's say, from interordinance and the receiver itself will just fall apart. Trunnions will crack, uh, the front side posts will fall off. Because the tooling is so specialized for the AK, there are only a, a certain number of manufacturers in the world today that really make them quality. And because of the Russian sanctions, these rifles are pretty expensive for the US market right now. So let's say you want a, a nice Bulgarian rifle because they're not Russian and you can get them in the United States because they're not uh, prohibited because of the, the Russian sanctions. You're, you're going to look at a rifle that's uh, $1,200 or more, whereas a couple of years ago that was not the case. AKs were kind of viewed as the, the cheaper rifle to get. They were considered shitty compared to the uh, AR rifle. But nowadays, there's kind of a like a, a growing interest in the AK as a platform. Even the United States military is looking into buying a bunch for training overseas when they are, you know, doing operations in Iraq and that kind of thing. It's one of those platforms that's so ubiquitous that knowing how to use it, and knowing how to use it well, will serve an operator because there's always going to be the AK platform. You know, it's not going anywhere, so you might as well learn it. Exactly. And I wanted to sort of go back to what you were saying about the perception of the AK as a cheap rifle. 
I think a lot of that had to do with the dissolution of the USSR and all these Eastern European countries sort of offloading their AK rifles into the American import market at really low cost just because they didn't need them anymore. So people kind of got used to buying AKs for $400 or something. But actually manufacturing an AK-47 properly in like the big plants that they have at like, you know, that they have in Eastern Europe that were set up by the Soviets to manufacture these. Like it's a large scale industrial operation and it costs a lot of money to run and to make these high quality rifles. If you get some American company that's, they don't have the stamping or the milling machinery and they just cast something quickly out of steel, it's just not going to hold up the same way as one that was actually made by a factory specifically set up for the AK manufacturing. Precisely. Now, there there are AK manufacturers that you know are actually decent that do exist in the United States. These are fairly recent. Over the past two years, I'd say, there have been some players that actually make decent rifles. But for the most part, people are importing them. And as far as I'm aware, there are only really two importers right now that uh, I would recommend other people to look into. There are Century Arms, who do not make good AKs themselves. They're one of those U.S. AK manufacturers that make terrible rifles. Uh, but they do import the Vossar 10 from Romania. It's from the state arms factory Chugir. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's C-U-G-I-R. But these are rifles that are made in a state weapons factory and then imported to the United States and sold by a company called Century Arms. My first AK was a Vossar 10, and it is a really good rifle. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with it, but it's probably the cheapest AK that you can get in the United States. The only other importer I would uh, recommend would be Arsenal, which has a, a factory in Bulgaria through Circle 10, I believe. And... I think they operate out of Las Vegas, but they're importing Bulgarian like state weapons manufactured AKs and and they're really they're really good. They're like the the gold standard in the US market. Nice. So if someone was looking at buying a semi-automatic, you know, rifle today, you know, what would sort of be you can never like say that this, you know, this rifle is the best one because people have different preferences and there are different applications where one is better than the other, but you know, which one do you think you could make a better case for if someone was looking for a semi-auto rifle, the AK or the AR? Uh, in today's climate, I would definitely just have to recommend an AR. The truth is, um, there's not much difference between, let's say, a $400 AR and a $1,000 AR. Um, but if you want to get into the AK market, you're looking at either getting a six to, let's say, $800 Vossar 10, depending on... Uh, the seller, and well, that's going to be one of your cheapest options. I think uh, Palmetto State has a PSAK 47 now that's a bit cheaper, but I think the jury's still out on that. Don't hold me to that. Just if you're looking for a semi auto rifle, just generally, just get an AR. They're far cheaper, and there's really no reason to, to spend more money than you need to. So, why would someone buy an AK rather than an AR 15? Well, if you really want a rifle that is going to uh, handle all weather conditions, if you want to be able to shoot in the snow while it's uh, raining and there's a simultaneous dust storm that's going on, the AK (laughs) is going to be your rifle. Yeah, it's just a really rugged, very strong rifle. 
I encourage people to look this up. There are what are called meltdown tests that people do on YouTube. This is a crazy thing to behold. Uh, someone will take a fully automatic AK-47 and they will just dump mag after mag after mag until the entire barrel is completely white hot. And it is so hot, in fact, that the metal begins to droop. And after they let it cool down, it's a completely ruined rifle because uh, now the barrel's crooked. But then you can just beat this rifle on a tree stump until it's straight again, and you're good to go. I know the video you're talking about. I won't recommend people watch that one because it's made by some questionable folks, but I guess that is sort of the deal. Like, the AK is not invincible. You can wear it out. You can push it to the point where it stops working. But when that happens, it's such a simple design and such a rugged design that it's easily repairable with very simple tools. You know, if you have a hammer and a screwdriver, you can fix most things that go wrong with AK-47s. Yes, exactly. And uh, any AK that you get is going to come with uh, like a, a field cleaning kit and uh, as well as some tools that, that help you disassemble it. So is there anything else you'd like to say about the AK-47 in general or its history or anything, any other interesting facts that you think people might want to know? Yeah, um, you know, throughout Mikhail Kalashnikov's life, he had to contend with the fact that his rifle was being exported all over the world to various interests and uh, guerrilla, militant, terrorist organizations and he was asked all the time, you know, like, don't you feel guilty for having created this machine that is just, it's one of the largest causes of death worldwide now. Like, uh, you see Bin Laden shooting your weapon. How do you feel about that? And I found this quote, which I, I think is uh, really elucidating on the situation. It's how he felt about uh, his creation. And I just want to share this. He says, it is the Germans who are responsible for the fact that I became a fabricator of arms. If not for them, I would have constructed agricultural machines. If someone asked me how I can sleep at night knowing that my arms have killed millions of people, I respond that I have no problem sleeping. My conscience is clean. I constructed arms to defend my country. Yeah, and I definitely think that says a lot about Kalashnikov's sort of approach and design philosophy. The AK is a tool built for a specific purpose. And while it's often fetishized in media, I think that the design philosophy of the AK is really, you know, it really is a tool. It is the hammer or the screwdriver of the firearm world. It is the simplest design that will do the job that it's designed for. And I think that from a design perspective, at least, it's, it's very much a pragmatic weapon that wasn't designed with fetishism in mind. So I definitely think that that's something that can be appreciated in a firearm. Oh, definitely. Um, it, it, you know, definitely has that socialist ethos of, you know, this is the, the tool, the people that we're going to use in order to crush the fascist. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your knowledge about this uh, firearms platform. Uh, do you have anything that you want to plug? Any projects that you're working on that you'd like people to know about? Uh, no projects. Uh, just if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, my Twitter at is Absinthol, A-B-S-I-N-T-H-O-L. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on. Solidarity. Solidarity.